been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. Hey, Radiant Church, it's Pastor Maddie here. And this weekend in the midst of our service, we were having a couple technical difficulties with our live stream. And so we weren't able to catch that first part of the sermon. And we wanted to make sure that we re-recorded that for you so you can go back and watch it this week or share it with friends, whatever that might mean for you. And so we're going to record just the beginning part of it and then we'll hop back in. Okay, so promises made, promises kept is the series that we introduced this weekend. And you know who's really, really good at keeping promises and reminding you of promises? Kids. Kids are really, really good at this. And from time to time, my husband Reed and I will go to his Nana's for lunch after church. And, and, you know, we'll get there and whether Nana has prepared a meal or we've brought our own food, we gather around the table and we have conversation and we eat food. And it's just such a good heartwarming time. And then, and then of course, after lunch, you know, we make our way to the couch and I lay down and might have something sweet while I'm on the couch, right? And I pull the blanket off the back the couch and I get all cozied up and I slowly drift off to sleep for my sweet, sweet post-church nap. And it is a wonderful time. And as I'm slowly drifting off to sleep, all of a sudden I, I feel this tiny little hand, these tiny little fingers on my head, just pop, pop, pop. Uh, Aunt Maddie? I open my eyes and it's my niece Zoe. I'll put a picture of her up here. It's my niece Zoe just staring down at me. She's like, Aunt Maddie, will you play Gabby's dollhouse with me? I'm like jolted out of my nap. 
And, you know, I, I, I say, hey, Zoe, you know, I'm trying to take a little nap right now. Let's play Gabby's Dollhouse when I wake up, okay? And, and keep in mind, we play Gabby's Dollhouse all the time when we get together, okay? I'm the fun aunt. I physically don't know how to say no. And secretly in this moment, I was kind of hoping that she would forget by the time I woke up from my nap. And, you know, she goes, okay, all right. And so I close my eyes and I slowly start to drift off back to sleep. It's so cozy, you got my blanket, I'm in a food coma, it's a beautiful thing. And all of a sudden I feel that same little hand, Aunt Maddie, and I open my eyes. Yes, Zoe, do you promise? <sighs> That's the hook, isn't it? That's how they get you. They say, do you promise? Because you know, once you make a promise with a five-year-old, there is no way you're getting out of it. And so that's just how that goes. Because, because five-year-olds, kids, they don't forget promises. And they shouldn't, right? Because promises are a seal of trust. Promises are a big deal. And in our new series, Promises Made, Promises Kept, we are going to talk about all the promises that God made to in the Old Testament to us leading up to the birth of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament and in the Bible, they don't really necessarily call them promises all the time, but they call them covenants. And we don't talk about covenants all that often these days, but we should because they truly are a big deal. Covenants are the key to God's redemptive plan to restore humanity to their divine calling. And what is that? To be with him again. Covenants are God's answer to uniting us with him again. And so in, throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the entire Old Testament, we see God entering one formal relationship into another with these partnerships that will drive the narrative forward until it reaches its climax in the birth of Jesus, okay? God's covenantal relationship with humans is, is the entire story leading up to that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And so as we start off, we want to talk about what is a covenant? What is a covenant? This was their first fill-in on the worship guides this weekend. And a covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to work together to reach a common goal. Okay. These covenants are often accompanied by oaths and signs and ceremonies and covenants define obligations and, and agreements and commitments, but they're different from a contract, right? A contract seems cold, maybe it seems a little corporate, and a covenant is more personal. It's intimate, okay? Think of a husband and wife and a marital relationship, okay? That is going to be a time when a husband and a wife, they come together, they choose to enter into this formal relationship, binding themselves to one another for a lifelong journey of faithfulness and devotion. They work as partners to reach a common goal. Maybe that common goal is building a life together, leaving a legacy, having children together, being a light in their neighborhood or in their church. They work together in this lifelong pursuit of devotion and faithfulness to one another to reach a common goal. That is a covenant, okay? It's not a cold contract, but it's a personal promise, there's no complete consensus on this specific amount of covenants that were made in the Old Testament or in the Bible. However, there are five foundational covenants that we see that God makes throughout the Bible. And this is what we're going to be talking about in our series. Today, we're going to talk about Noah. Next week, we're going to talk about Abraham. 
and then Moses, and then David. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Jesus, the final covenant, the final promise. This is your reminder that Christmas is just five weeks away. (laughs) And these are the different topics we'll be studying leading right up to that. And while we're kicking off this series this morning, it's important to talk about, um, obviously, what is a covenant. But I want to talk to you about why we need covenants. Because it's so important. We can read stories through the Bible all the time and have no idea why they're happening or the context of those stories. And so we're going to dive into that today. We're going to be diving into a lot of scripture. So if you have your Bibles, open that up. Okay, I'm going to be reading God's word just as it is. I don't want to communicate to you Maddie's idea of why covenants are important, but by God's idea of why covenants are important. So you can open your Bibles or open your YouVersion app or it'll be on the screen as well. But we are going to start off in Genesis 2 this morning. And we see in Genesis 2 is the beginning of this story unfolding of God's desire to be with humankind. Since the beginning of creation, God has desired you. And I say you personally. I'm not talking about you, some big informal grouping. I am saying each one of you individually, God has desired to be with you. He has held such a deep and intimate kind of love for you. In Genesis 2, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this for us, and we're going to read what it looks like as God is describing humankind. And I think so often when we read through um, the beginning of the creation story, we're reading it through, and we're like, okay, yeah, seven days, Adam and Eve from his rib, took a nap, made the woman, okay, we get it, right? But it's actually a big deal. And there's some really important words in here and language that we should see. So we're going to start in Genesis 2. We're going to start in verse 26, okay? Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds and the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. This last line here, God saw all that he had made. And it was what? It was very good. It was very good. Do you hear that language as he's talking about mankind? He created us in his likeness. He created us to have dominion on the earth, which is his gift to us. He created us in verse 28, it says, to be blessed. He created us and said it was very good. Say that with me one more time, very good. That whole section is not just a piece of the creation story to be read over. That section is pure poetry. It is God uh, just, just describing his admiration and his desire for his creation, for 
us. It's poetry and it's beautiful. But we know what happens next. We head into Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are tempted by the, ser- by the serpent and they fall into temptation and do the one thing God asks them not to do. And I think so often we, we can look at this, at this passage and we can be like, oh my gosh, why would they do that? I would never do that. Or we look at this passage and we think, God must have been upset with them. He must have been disappointed with them. But I want to note the language that he uses in chapter 3 when he says things like, where are you? What have you done? And who told you that you were naked? He sees them hiding. And like any parent watching their child hurt, he's not angry with them. He speaks the word so perfectly to display the feeling if you're a parent and you're watching your child hurt. You're a parent and you're watching your child hurt and you feel that pit in your stomach. You feel the bottom drop out. You feel your heart sink. And he says, where are you? What have you done? Who told you that you were naked? Another way of interpreting this is, who stole my child's innocence? Who stole my child's innocence? We are his children, and in that moment, our innocence was stripped. That innocence that he created for us was taken away. He's not angry. He's not seeking to devour and diminish. He's disappointed, and he's saddened, and his heart is broken. Who stole my child's innocence? The thing about sin is that it's not just a list of rules and regulations. The thing about sin is that it's not some sort of type of like tight moral grid that we have to keep ourselves to so intently so lest we disappoint God. Sin is a big deal because it inhibits us from doing the things that we were created to do best, which is to give love and receive love. And why does sin inhibit us from doing that? Because sin is not of God, and it keeps us from him. He is the very creator of love, and it keeps us from him. Eugene Peterson said it well when he said, sin is a refused relationship with God that spills over into wrong relationship with others. Sin is always personal. It's always personal. It's not against some rules and regulations. It's always personal. It goes against God. It is not of God. It's personal, and it hurts. And at the end of this heartbreaking scene in Genesis 3, there's this statement that is read. He, God, placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. The entrance to the free and pure way of life that God had intended for us is forever guarded in this moment. But, praise to our Father, the story does not end there. Adam and Eve leave the garden and they're heading east, but they do not go alone. God goes with them. He seeks them out. And I think what's important to note here is that he's not just going with them. He's not compromising. He's not lowering his standard of holiness, okay? The story of God isn't of a compromising God, but of a pursuing God. He pursues them, not of a compromising God. He goes with them. 
And I'm, we're here to talk about Noah this morning, as I mentioned, but the history leading up to Noah's time is so important. We go from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where humankind is in perfect relationship with God, perfect harmonious communion with him. We are walking with him. And we get to chapters 3 and on, where we are completely separated from him. And what's important to know about the story of Noah, if you know, it's about the story of the flood that would come for earth. And um, God just didn't decide like willy-nilly when he woke up one day. He was like, I'm going to flood the earth. No, it wasn't that simple, okay? This was a really big deal. The earth, after the fall of man, got really dark and really sinful really quickly, really quickly. After Adam and Eve's exile from Eden, the biblical narrative feels grim. It feels dark and it feels hopeless. In Genesis 4, Cain, Adam and Eve's son, sides with the serpent, killing his brother in cold blood. Later, a man named Lamech brags about his murderous, chauvinistic, sinful, dark ways. In Genesis 5, it repeats the refrain, and he died eight separate times. This reveals just how intensely death was reigning over all of humanity. It was nearly hopeless. Nearly. We're going to pick up. You can turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to be switching to the NLT translation for this. Just a heads up. We normally preach out of the NIV. But I want to read you this from the NLT because the way that I read it, it really hit home. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we'll have it on the screens as well. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. Do you read that? Every inclination. When I say it was grim, when I say it was dark and it was hopeless, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Every thought was evil, every action, every word, every move, all of it was evil. And while God may have been angry, he was also brokenhearted. This is the epitome of heartache. His children have completely turned against him and have no desire for him. It's heartache. And we see his wrath and his choice to flood the earth, and and it seems sometimes a little harsh. And sometimes his wrath maybe scares us, we're afraid of it. We see his wrath as our destruction and our separation. We see his wrath as something that's sent to destroy us. But I need you to know, church, that that was never once his purpose. We are his creation. We just spent that whole time in Genesis 2 studying how he delights in you. And remember, I'm not talking about some sort of big informal grouping you. I mean, each one of you individually, he delights in you. So what does this wrath mean? God knew that if he didn't send the flood that the humans wouldn't correct. He made a way for us. The purpose of God's wrath isn't to destroy us. The purpose of God's wrath is to to destroy the things that keep us from him, which is sin. 
Sin is not of him. His wrath isn't necessarily just against people, it's against sin. And why? Because sin is everything that he is not. Sin takes us so far from him when his, his, his desire is for us to be near to him. His desire is us. His wrath is a warning. His wrath is a harbinger of judgment. And why? Because he doesn't want us to experience judgment. He doesn't want us to be separated from him. So we watch as his wrath is carried out as a reminder to run to him. His wrath isn't carried out against you. It's carried out against what will destroy you. And I know as we're sitting here today, if this is your first time in church or first time in a while, you're like, this is kind of hellfire brimstone. She's kind of intense. Oh, sorry. I got a woohoo. Some of you like hellfire brimstone. That's okay. <laughs> but it is intense. And it is a big deal. You have a God, the creator of the earth, who desires to be with you. But there's something separating us from him. Something separating us from life to the fullest. And spoiler alert, if it weren't for him, we can't do anything about it. We're screwed. But he makes a way. People were so far from him with no desire to come back to the Father, except for one. In that verse it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here in this singular moment we see God didn't give up. He's always had a rescue plan. He's always had a rescue plan. In verse 9 it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. God sees the corruption on earth. He sees the evil intentions of the people inhabiting it, and he decides to wipe it clean. But as it is the same, as the same God in this time of Noah, he's the same God in the time of Adam and Eve, he does not leave them alone. He does not compromise. He does not lower his standard of holiness. He pursues them, and he seeks them out, and he makes a way. So he saves Noah. He saves his family. He saves the animals on the boat, and he floods the earth and wipes it clean. We pick up in chapter 9. I told you we're going to be in a lot of scripture today. You can flip to Genesis chapter 9. And I want you to pay attention because this is the covenantal point. This is the point we've been working up to this morning. We're going to start in verse 8, Genesis 9. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were here on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on the earth, yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all creatures for all generations to come. That is us right here, all generations to come. A sign of my covenant with you and all living generations. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. That's our promise. That's our covenant. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you, with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, 
This rainbow is the sign of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth. This is our God. This is our promise keeper. This is our God who pursues. This is our God who seeks us out. This is the God of new beginnings. This is the God who keeps his promises. So God enters into this formal relationship with Noah and all living creatures and all generations. And as that video said, he entered into this covenant, even knowing that we were going to screw up again. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> we're going to screw up again. Despite humanity's corruption, he will never flood the earth again. And we talk about God being a promise keeper, and we talk about how these stories are weaved all throughout the Bible. He says he will never destroy the earth with a flood again. Have you noticed how water is then used in the rest of the Bible? The story of Moses He's leading the Israelites out of a life of death and slavery. He's leading them into new life away from the Egyptians, and they get to the Red Sea. I've never walked through a sea. Well, I mean metaphorically, but I've never walked through a literal sea. But what happens when they get there? The Red Sea parts, and they walk through it untouched. God kept his promise, leading into new life. You open up to the book of Joshua. They come up to the Jordan River. It says in chapter 3 that the river should have been at flood state. There's no way that they should have made it through. What happens? They come up to the edge of the river, and it's dry. And they make it through, leading to new life. We jump to the New Testament, and we see the act of baptism, the very act that literally signifies new life. In 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21, it says this. this oh, this is so good. This is so crazy. So to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ. He is a promise keeper, amen? That's who he is. As always, when we say when we baptize with someone, we, we lean them down into the water and we say, buried with him in death, him being Jesus Christ. When we take them back out of the water, we say, risen again to walk new life. If it were not for God's covenant, we'd be dead in that water. If it were not for God's covenant, God's promise, we'd be dead in that water. I'm going to welcome Weston back up to the stage, and we're going to land the plane here. If it weren't for God's saving grace, God's patience with us, God's desire for us, God's passion for pursuit of us, we'd be dead in that water. But he made a way, didn't he? And we made it on the boat. This series, Promises Made, Promises Kept, is going to be so special. Because it's about all of these different points in time where God had planned so intentionally and so intimately a way to bring us back to the Father. Our God is unfathomable. We know this. In this series, we're also going to learn about how our God is eternal and our God is intentional. Time does not limit him. He is alpha and omega. He is the beginning and the end. And all throughout the Bible, we see these promises that lead to Jesus. 
we realize how God is living in eternity. And so when God gives us a promise, what he's doing is he's, he's seen into our future. He brings back the word that is necessary to get us where he already saw us. God brings the word that can enable us to live in the promises that he's already seen. God laying out these Old Testament covenants is him reaching through the fabric of time and saying, I'm making a way for you. I'm making a way for you. I've got that one. He's mine. She's covered. I've made a way for them. I've laid out the covenants. I've laid out the promises. I already know what's going to happen. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the creator of time. And I've made a way for them. As he made these covenants with these different individuals that we'll be talking about, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, every time he made a covenant, it was specifically to lead to Jesus, which is our promise. Every time, since the beginning of time, since before creation, God was laying out promises in order to pursue you, to pursue you. Don't we want to, it's not every human's natural desire to desire to be loved. He loves you and he's pursuing you. The, the Bible is just a giant timeline of the Father doing this over and over again. And it's not just a story to be read. It's not just a sweet Christmas time feeling. It's not just something cute that your grandma's gonna sew on her pillow. It's not a cute Facebook post, okay? It is the greatest love story ever written. And it's written by our creator for you. His people in relationship with him yet again. This baby that would be our fresh start, our new beginning, our king, our deliverer. And all of these stories leading up to him is God's will. And his way of saying, I'm making a way for you. Come back to me. I'm pursuing you. I'm pursuing you. I'm seeking you out. And so we're going to keep studying these promises. Today's just the warm-up. I'm so excited. On your seats when you came in this morning, you had little cards. If you want to pick those up and take a look at those. Those have the covenants, the promises that we're going to be studying throughout this series. And my desire for you is that you would take this home and that you would look into this scripture that you would study this scripture, that you would pray to God, that you would say, show me these same promises that you have been doing my whole life. Show me these, because you are the same God. Show me these promises. Let me seek this out. I encourage you, study this scripture. Bring the paper back each week if you want. Take notes on the back. And let's dive into this study. Let's dive into the greatest love story ever written where he pursued you, each one of you, intentionally, intimately, and individually. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. If you leave with nothing else today, just please, God loves you. We're going to head back into worship here in a moment. And I didn't tell them this, but I would love it if the prayer team could be available. Jen Sharp. Um, if you would mind heading out there. Maybe Mylon, if you could head to the back. If you need someone to pray over you this morning, if you need someone to communicate to you that God loves you, if you just need to hear that from another individual, 
they're here. They're a safe and trusted team. I'll be over here. You can come pray with me. If you want to learn about the story of how God is pursuing you, we're ready to, to talk to you about it. And I hope that you're ready to continue diving in with us in this series.